everyone, that was so smooth, wasn't it? Um, so, wonderful Stevie, who is our great librarian that's been comparing these, uh, has just come back from India, from the Indian subcontinent, where she's been discovering herself. So, you have me comparing this evening. Try not to do it too badly. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is now the first book jam of 2020, which makes it eight years since we've been doing book jam. <laughs> that is a long time. So, it's great to see you all here. Uh, we've got a really good bill for you tonight. It's very eclectic. There's a kind of a theme of time travel, past, present, future. So, you're going to be firmly rooted in reality for some of the writers and out on the wider echelons of the universe for others. So, enjoy. A um, couple of things to mention. There's free copies of the Brixton Review of Books on a table over there. Uh, and a second magazine, which is also free, and of course books by the writers who will be reading tonight. Special book jam prices. And a free tote with uh, Rosanna Amaka's uh, love song to Brixton. So you'll be hearing that shortly. Um, but just to get straight into things, the first writer that I'm going to be introducing is Simon Rumley. He's obviously, he has another life. This is, is this your secret life, Simon? He's in his work life one of the most successful UK directors of his generation, uh, directing nine feature films, two anthology films, including Red, White and Blue, Fashionista, and a segment from the ABCs of Death. His films have played at festivals around the world, including Toronto, Rotterdam, SXSW, Sarajevo, Tallinn, Transylvania, Buenos Aires, Sydney, London, Rio, and Stockholm, and won almost 50 awards, including Best Films or Director at Tickes. Now, we're going to be hearing from his first novel. So I'm really intrigued by how that's going to be. Uh, his latest film, Once Upon a Time in London, peaked at number three on Netflix. So let's hear it for Simon Rumley. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, I know you didn't all come here to see me, but uh, it's great to see a big crowd here. Um, so yeah, so uh, um, so I am my day job is a, is a film director, um, screenwriter. So I've been, but I wanted to be write, uh, uh, have wanted to write a novel for a long time. So I, I basically started at the end of 2018, did a, a, about a month, did a, another month at the end of last year, and, and this year I just decided. Um, that wasn't really on, and, and I've taken some time off from my, my day job to, um, to basically try and finish this thing. And I'm about 70,000 words in, and I think it's going to be about 120,000, 130,000. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with, with, with it when I finish it. Um, and this is the first time I've ever read it, so, um, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, I'm not going to say too much about it, um, because, well, I will say there is no time traveling. Um, but the, um, it, it, it's, it's, all I'm going to say is the two main characters, Jill and Broly, um, are two morbidly obese, uh, are a morbidly obese couple. Um, she's about 36 stone, he's about 40 stone. They live in, um, just off the Woolworth Road and, and live a very happy life. And, and this is, um, well, that's it. So um, here goes. Um, for as long as Jill and Broly had frequented King Kebab, the premises had not changed. Milk chocolate, faux wooden panelling on the walls, cracked and scuffed grey tiles on the floor, no windows except the obligatory one at the front staring um, onto the Walworth Road. Outside, 
and four oblong formica tables at the back, graffitied and semi-vandalized. Next to the till was a faded picture of the owner, Emir, gesturing cheekily into camera. Above his head, he held a brand new leather football in between his smiling and proud parents. It was taken on his 12th birthday, almost a year before his family fled Turkey due to his father's conscientious objection during a time of war in the early 1970s. Whenever life became more problematic than he would have liked, he looked at the photograph and thanked Allah for his happy childhood and for the family that he could love with an enthusiasm similar to that with which his parents had loved him. A man of few words and a humor that was so subtle hardly anyone knew about it, he wore a black eye patch over his left eye and had a purple birthmark under his right. He didn't know Jill or Broly's names, but looked forward to their weekly exchange, which, much like the surroundings, never changed, but which always offered a slightly humorous respite from the evening's often humorless toil. I'll have two medium donors, please, Jill would say. We don't do medium donors, just small, large, and extra large, Emir always responded. If you've got three, isn't the large one the medium one? No, we don't do medium donors, the large one is the large one. All right, in that case, I'll have two ex extra large donors, please. Broly would contradict, I think I'll just have a large one. Jill would say, I think that's a medium one. No, they don't do medium ones, they only do small, large, and extra large. Jill was the first to stagger into the shop as a police car sped by, its siren ripping through the air like bleach through dirt. Broly followed less enthusiastically, his mood affected by the journey which had encouraged an anxious introspection. Salim, Emir's son who still lived with his parents above the premises, looked up disinterestedly and failed to greet them. Amir did the same, but repressed a barely noticeable smirk as Jill and Broly stepped, um, stopped to consider the expansive menu above the two dripping kebab spits. They stared at the words describing each order, but didn't read them. Like unconvincing te teachers attempting to disguise their favorite pupil before picking him anyway, they knew exactly what they were going to order, or Jill did, or at least she thought she did. Twice, Broly looked at her out of the corner of his eye, as if unconsciously gauging her mood. He also quickly looked at a drunken city worker who was mindlessly and repetitively tapping her phone screen, ignorant of a better way to relieve her life's limitations. When the city worker stopped, started moaning to herself, Jill also looked at her, a sure sign that Jill's concentration had been broken and she was about to commence the weekly charade. Before she could toss down her gauntlet to her emir, however, Broly preempted her, unmeditated, unplanned, from the bottom of his heart and the depths of his busting gut. He spoke mildly, but decisively. I don't think I want anything, actually. At this point, I should also say they've been eating all day, um, quite, quite gluttonously, which you may have got. Um, anyway, I don't think I want anything, actually. Jill knew what she'd heard, but didn't understand what she'd heard, was confused by what she'd heard, and if she'd had time to consider what she'd heard in the cold light of an alcohol-free day, would have been more worried by what she'd heard. Still, she certainly didn't like the sound of what she'd heard. What do you mean? Although pretending to concentrate on other business, Salim and Amir both cocked their ears towards the conversation. I think I'm a bit full. Broly had never uttered anything so shockingly slimline in his life. What do you mean? I just, I, I think I've had enough for the day. Yeah, I, I don't know what you mean. I just, I, I, I don't want any more. Jill was speechless. Jill was incredulous. He was her partner in foodie crime, her soulmate. That's spelled S-O-L-E. Um, her burrito buddy, her pizza pal. What was he thinking? She couldn't believe he didn't want a delicious, dripping, extra-large donut kebab smothered with chili and garlic sauce. In the nanoseconds, her brain processed his words, and instinctive defiance and self-protective resilience took over. She turned to Emir with a combative twinkle in her eye. 
He was staring at her. He felt guilty for staring. He wanted to avert his eyes, but also wanted to support Jill in her hour of need. How on earth could the fattest man in the shop, and probably the fattest man in the Worth Road, possibly the fattest man south of the river, perhaps the fattest man in the whole of London, how could he, slightly drunk, whatever his name, not want a comforting midnight snack? It was a British tr tradition, after all, and, not, and, and one that, since Emma's arrival last century, had showed absolutely no sign of abating. For the first time in his life, Amir wondered if he shouldn't offer his loyal and trusted customers a medium kebab. <laughs> I'll have two extra donors, please, Jill said confidently. Amir's jaw dropped. Salim guffawed silently, brawly tensed. His face took on a beetroot quality. He knew he had to man up quickly to own the situation. He didn't like confrontation, least of all with the one he loved, but he had just been slapped in the face with a metaphorical wet kipper, and a large one at that. If the smell was unpleasant, the aftertaste would be worse. Jill, I said, I don't want one. It wasn't clever, it wasn't tactical, it wasn't even very grown up, but it was all he could think of under the pressure of the moment. Yeah, I know, they're both for me. She smirked as she offered her punchline. He'd stumbled straight into her trap. Amir tried to stifle a titter but failed. Salim accidentally spat his gum into the satsiki. The city worker stopped mumbling to herself and two stubbly road workers who were loitering menacingly at the end of the counter turned around to see which maniac ordered not one but two of the inhumanly sized extra large kebabs for herself. For the second time, Broly tried to come up with a witty retort or a manly put down but failed completely and felt foolish in his abject silence. A few seconds passed and Jill felt like she'd just won a gold medal from a school of one-upmanship. She rested her proud weight on her raven aluminium walking stick and twisted her head towards the end of the premises. One of the stubbly road, wor road workers caught her eye and winked at her. She blushed like a teenager with a crush and fluttered her eyes before looking away, chuffed at how she'd handled the affront. Broly wanted to hide, to crawl under the covers of his bed and forget the whole sorry affair. But storming off wasn't his style, so he remained, next to Jill, but standing less protectively than usual. He, pre he pretended to be bored and yawned showily, but, um, but struggled to ignore the deliberately provocative manner in which she ordered everything. Garlic sauce? You know what I like. Extra hot sauce? Oh uh, yeah, pour it on. Satsiki? Um, is that chewing gum there? Onions, tomatoes, cabbage, pickles? Yes, 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 and yes. Don't hold back now. Was she flirting with Amir? At least she didn't call him baby, he supposed. After the old man handed her the first kebab, Jill finally gave Broly some attention, relenting on her previous, previous contrariness. You sure you don't want one? She asked appeasingly, almost caringly. He was sure. She understood his curtness and chose not to engage him. Self-conscious, feeling watched by the whole world and especially the winking road worker, she nonetheless thrived on the attention. Used to public eating, she did what she did best and attacked the first kebab with confidence and aplomb. She ripped it apart like a lioness rips apart a baby gazelle. Without taking a break or a breath, she segued into the second one and devoured that before the grease congealed, congealed into white slushy fat and before her stomach had time to bemoan its lot with a recidivistic belch. In silence, they rode the last few minutes home, Jill on the road accelerating to her mobility scooter's full eight miles per hour and Broly on the pavement studiously maintaining its legal speed limit and their previous unremarkable four miles per hour. When he arrived home, five minutes later than her, the door was wide open and the kitchen light was shining, not so much an inviting beacon of conciliation, but a blast of glaring defiance. Come in if you dare. His resolve was honorable, however, as he parked his vehicle behind hers and gently closed the door. 
front, uh, double locking it like he did every night. He stepped as softly as he could towards the kitchen. He intended to give Jill a big, fat, slobbery kiss, bear hug her and suggest they forget the whole thing. But as soon as he set eyes on her, something snapped inside. Like a, like a seven-headed zombie dragon bursting from a dark, dank cave, his subconscious finally emerged. It wasn't aggressive so much as instinctive. It challenged him to think the word that the thought he'd wanted to think for a long time, to articulate the words he'd wanted to articulate longer than he knew, those nine fateful words that would change his life forever. Jill, I think we should go on a diet. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Simon. So um, our next writer is Andrew Leach. He's quite a bit taller than me, so excuse me whilst I raise the mic. I'll do the intro whilst you climb the steps. So um, Andrew Leach has bravely stepped into the breach uh, as Mark Hill, unfortunately, has a really bad migraine. It's currently lying down in a dark room. But we are in luck because he's a great writer. He writes novels, short stories, sometimes the odd poem. He's had work published in a number of anthologies and collections, most recently the Mechanics Institute Review. Sounds intriguing. Uh, and he was also highly commended in the 2019 Sean O'Fallon Int International Short Story Prize. Other publishing destinations include Reflex Fiction, Magma Poetry, Strix Magazine, Storgi, Ellipsis Zine, and two volumes of Stories for Homes for Charity Shelter, which is actually when he previously performed at the Book Jam because he was uh, launching that. Um, he'll be reading from Boom Babies, a novel which follows a group of characters coming to terms with the climate emergency and the lack of action taken to address its causes and consequences during the past 30 years. Welcome, Andrew Leach. Thank you very much. Thank you. As Zelda said, it's, uh, it's from Boom Babies. It appeared as uh, something in the Mechanics Institute Review, which is a, an annual anthology by Birkbeck University. Uh, last year's was all about climate change, hence this story being in there. Uh, we start really from the point of view of a young lady called Astrid. And Astrid is, if you like, a kind of Naomi Klein type figure. She's a campaigner, a writer, etc. If the camera panned around slowly, we would see a minimalist office or maybe an open plan kitchen with plate glass sliding windows and a view of the ocean. On a polished island counter with a sparkling stone surface, there would be a high-tech laptop next to a juicer and a sculpted fruit bowl cradling peaches, kiwis, apples. The camera would glide over the fruit, suggesting a wholesome, healthy lifestyle, and would come to rest on the computer. It would linger on the screen on which we see an emerging pattern of red dots. The movie soundtrack would be a specific song playing softly in the background. It's a cover version, something edgy, perhaps talking heads burning down the house for reasons that will become clear in a moment, but on an acoustic guitar or on a piano. You would realise that what we're looking at on the computer is a map, and Margot Robbie would lean in close to the screen and say, Oh my God! 
and the dots would glow red like cherries, or like those little stickers they put on the wall in an art gallery next to a picture that's been sold. And if that's what it made you think of, you might go, wow, that's one heck of a gallery. Margot would say, hey, come and look at this. And Ryan Gosling would step into shot and lean in closer to the laptop, and Margot would say something like, the world is burning. Wildfires. Each red dot represents a wildfire, the landscape a whole ossuary of dry. The world is burning. California, Texas, the mountains of southern Europe, Greece and Spain and Italy, South Africa, Australia, the moors above Manchester, Sweden, Siberia, the Arctic Circle. Think about those last few for a minute. Ryan would say something like, how can this happen? Because despite being smart enough to hold down a job as a lawyer and earning enough money to afford a beachfront property, and as we'll later discover, an apartment in the city, he recognises the need for dialogue that helps move the plot along, even if it sounds like he really ought to get it straight off the bat. Humans are literally setting fire to the planet, Margot says. In a first draft of the script, Ryan might have said, what, you mean arson? But he's not that dumb because lawyer, etc. And now he stays quiet as Margot says that every one of these dots represents a discarded cigarette, a small-time barbecue, a piece of glass from a broken bottle reflecting the sun, kids building campfires, and yes, some of them are started deliberately by people who look suspiciously like Javier Bardem. And the camera will sweep away, out of the dunes, out of the kitchen, out of the house, along the beach, panning out, widening the view, travelling miles by helicopter until we're over a great fire, and people are running and sirens are squawking, and smoke is blanketing treetops before blooming into the sky like ink swirling in water, and flames are crackling and hauling themselves higher into the forest, and ash is dancing like a black snowstorm, and the music is no longer the cover version, but has become the original recording, and the volume is cranked, and it goes ba 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 da ba 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 except this isn't a movie. I wake with little red dots still burning holes behind my eyes, turn off the quiet burble of my phone's alarm. I reach out for Lachlan, but instead my sleepy hand touches Brett's shoulder. He murmurs, you okay, honey? And I tell him yes and say, go back to sleep. I lean over and lightly kiss his temple and he makes a low, sighing, bovine noise. The clock on Brett's side of the bed says 05.15 and I slip from beneath the sheet and put on my robe, creep out of the bedroom in the hope that he'll sleep on. In the kitchen I make tea and think about phoning Lachlan, but the clock on the oven says 05.21 and I don't think he'd thank me. My laptop sits closed on the counter and I'm grateful for the links that Cassie sent over last night, the drama contained in graphics that render the whole world ablaze, the little red spots spreading out like a virus and the truth bomb that I'm planning on detonating later today. Outside the sun's already been up for half an hour and yesterday's heat still hangs in the air waiting to be topped up like a Caribbean tan like a bed that still holds the warmth of the last person to lie in it as you climb in between sheets that need changing. And I think about Lachlan, his head on the pillow, and I silently chide myself for holding the image somewhere on my brain's hard drive. 
The small urban garden visible through the kitchen window looks like it's been bleached, green seared to yellow-white, brown earth to beige dust. A car's coming for me at quarter two. I take my tea into the bathroom. The car's a Prius, which is at least something. I'm wondering why I've agreed to take part in this. An early morning duel live on the radio about the need for more renewable energy sources following the release of a report from a so-called think tank claiming there's no appetite for solar and wind power. The adversary the BBC has decided to pitch me against is my uncle. I'd asked a couple of people in my organisation whether they thought I should do it, and once it had been established that there's no love loss between dear old Uncle David and me, they seemed to think it would get good coverage and help reinforce our argument. Someone who thought he was clever said, it's Kramer versus Kramer all over again, and I said, it's not spelled the same, we're Kramer with a C, and he said, but still. A child at the BBC, who had at least been trying to do some homework, called me to arrange the interview. They asked if I'd prefer to use my married name, and I said, what do you mean, married name, being deliberately obtuse? They said, isn't your husband Brett Loeb? And I said, yes, but that's his name, not mine. It only took for them to say but for me to say, he married me, he didn't brand me. I remember breathing deeply and feeling regretful about being so spiky. I'm sorry, I said, but my name is Astrid Kramer. If you'd like to embellish it further, my middle name is Violet after my grandmother, and I have a master's in environmental planning, so you can use MSC too if you like. I didn't take my husband's name and don't intend to, just as he didn't take mine. They apologised and said they didn't mean any offence, but I cut them off and said it was okay and no offence taken. If I were them, I'd just have, I might have well have hung up. So now I'm in the back of the Prius that's already getting snarled in city traffic, which for the most part is still spewing particulates into the not-so-sweet morning air, on my way to a BBC studio where my uncle will be presented as somehow providing balance to a decades-old debate about whether climate change is an actual thing and how much longer we can continue to relegate wind and solar energy to bit parts when in reality the debate should be about how we're going to make wind and solar the go-to option. And the whole thing is, frankly, a fucking sham. Outside the car window, a poster advertising a breakfast cereal says, get ready for a brand new world. And a yellow cartoon sun grins like a celestial emoji over a field of golden corn. And I think, you don't know the half of it, sunshine. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Andrew Leach. Um, so we're, we, the next writer we have has written a really beautiful book. Uh, her name is Rosalia Maka. She was born into African and Caribbean present parents, and she began writing the Book of Echoes 20 years ago to give voice to the Brixton community in which she grew up. And hands up who lives around here. And we, mu we all see it vanishing, and whether it's as you know people uh, moving out, people being priced out, people getting old and dying. Our community's changing really fast. And I think she's really captured something very beautiful and evanescent in uh, the Book of Echoes. Um, she, she's kind of depicting the unimaginable pain, redeemed by love and hope. The hopes that people came here with, the, the communities they tried to build, and then the new communities that 
that kind of growing alongside, but sometimes always supplanting them. I think actually Rosanna can explain it better than me. So let's welcome to the stage Rosanna Amaka. So um, the book is called um, The Book of Echoes and it's narrated by an enslaved African woman that died um, over 200 years ago in the West Indies um, docks. And um, it, before she dies, she loses, she loses um, her children. So she basically haunts the world trying to find her lost children. And in the process, she comes across Michael, who's based here in Brixton, and Ngozi, who's based in Nigeria. So the bit that I'm going to read is, is right at the beginning um, about how she came to um, die in the West Indies docks. So. The beginning, London, West India docks, 1803. They dragged me from the ship, kicking and screaming. I heard them enter the hold, heard them begin to search. The two voices grew louder as they approached a hole where wind had hidden us. I held my hand over my mouth to stop the nausea, the other over my heart to calm its beating. Felt the dead boy beside me, smelt him, cowered downwards, deeper, towards the spot where I could feel a little breeze coming through. I prayed then for freedom, for wind, for our precious belly, for the dream that wind had forced me to believe in. Then I heard someone walk off, heard his footsteps die away on the deck, heard the other follow, my heart lifted. Then he stopped, paused, as if he was having one last look around, sniffing the air, and turned right around. His footsteps became louder as he drew closer. He jerkily shoved the barrels aside, kicked the board covering the hole, bent down low, peered in. His eyes seemed to glitter. I screamed. In here, he called. Quick! He reached into the hole and grabbed hold of my arm, my dress, my ankle, pulled me feet first out of that hole. I shrieked. Felt the pain as our precious belly dragged against the side of the hole, knocking my head. I clung to the sides for dear life. Felt the pain as he yanked harder at my ankle. Then he dropped it, came over to bend my fingers back, and I kept crying, no, as he loosened my grip, before dragging me out of by my collar, along the deck, up the stairs, each step striking my belly, my head. I felt the splinters in my palms sting as I tried to resist. Tried to grip, get a grip. Felt the cold night breeze on my face as they hauled me out onto the top deck, down the gangway, before smashing me and our belly against hard cobbled ground. The pain shot through me, and I emptied my stomach of the little I had left in it. It must have been the smell of the boy that led them to us. The gangrene had gotten the day before. Earlier, Wind had hung his head like it was too heavy for him to carry when he realized he was too late. He took his cap off, kneeled, and reached in to close the boy's eyes gently, then prayed like the white sailors do. 
I placed my hand on his shoulder, tried to console him, but he shrugged it off, then turned to lift me into the barrel, but I wouldn't let him. I grabbed his face between my hands, stared into his eyes, forced him to look into mine, placed his hand on our belly, and he finally understood. She was tender. I did not think she could take the rolling. He did not want to let me go. So I kissed him on his mouth, breathed my strength into him like he had breathed his into me. And he promised with a twitch of his eyes to return, to come back with a sack and fetch me from the hole. He took the young man first, a man he had found running from the British shoulder, soldiers just before we set sail from the island Jamaica. He rolled him off the ship onto the docks like it was a barrel of rum. And he, the young man, disappeared into that London night, finally free from the plantation where he was born, swallowed among the black poor of the East End. Wynne saw him safely on his way, left him in the hands of folk in Canning Town, and as promised, turned right around to get me. There were three of us he had tried to save, the boy, the man, and me, four including our belly. Outside by the docks, where they had thrown me, I tried to crawl away from the voices shouting above me, but the pain from my belly pierced me and my body convulsed with nausea, but gave up nothing. I heard more voices around me, and as I looked upwards from the cobbled ground, the crowd parted to reveal a man who descended upon me like a white-headed eagle, dressed in layers of black cloth, his hair as wiry and white as cotton, he held a flaming torch in his raised hand and a stick in the other. I cowered away from the devil, tried to crawl with one arm towards the dark waters, holding our precious belly with the other. But he would not let me. He shoved my shoulder hard with his stick. I fell backwards, landed flat against the hard cobbles. I looked up at the night sky, at their angry white faces peering down at me, and wondered why I had come to this hell. Stow away, sir. I saw the Negro, James Jones, rolling a barrel off the ship, sir. James Jones? Yes, sir. You know the sea and. They call him wind. Tall, sir. Yes. Yes, I do. I was coming out of the alehouse, saw him rolling an empty barrel off the ship, and something about it seemed strange, so I went investigating, sir. Found her and a dead Negro boy, sir. Where's the sea hand now? Don't know, sir. Paul, send a search party. Find this Negro. Yes, sir. Search the docks. They say he resides in the East End, sir. Maybe Canning Town. Paul, send a few men to search there, too. Yes, sir. Sir, what do we do with the Negro woman? Put her in the warehouse. We can deal with her later. And I felt a wetness soak my clothes. Tried to look down at our precious belly to see if she was all right. But I could not. So I lay upon that cold ground, fighting to breathe. For the life within me was our hope. The only choice I had made since being taken from my homeland. For she was made in love, in hope my lone flower. 
I heard the water lap against the quayside, the faint sound of the horse's hooves, the squawk of the seagull above, and I breathed deep and hard and fought to stay alive. I don't know about you, but the hairs are creeping up and down my neck. I listen to that. You can actually hear Rosanna again. She'll be speaking at Waterstones in Croydon on the 19th of March. Uh, thank you very much, Rosanna. Um, we're in a bit of a crazy time at the moment. Who knows what's going on? So Lenny Hayden is going to sing us into chaos with a song called There's No One at the Wheel. Because frankly, there's fucking no one at the fucking wheel. Take it away, Lenny. It's overcome with emotion. Let me give you a little bio here. So Lenny is a, a well-known and appreciated actor and director. He's from Dublin. He's a fellow Dubliner. Uh, and he's it's only recently you've made him into a year. He's yeah. made a big impact in his brief time here, let me tell you. <laughs> Most recently, he played Lear in King Lear for Mill Productions and, and directed a devised play, Savage Love, by Sam Shepard for Imagine Arts Festival in Waterford. Are you meant to be setting stuff up in the back? No. Uh, he's also written some short stories, short film scripts, and one-man stage show. Given his prolificity, I'm very surprised it was so hard to get him to sing us a song, but he's going to do it now. Uh, and uh, a one-man stage show which he performed for an exquisite corpse night in Waterford. Having not written poetry or songs for many years, he's now going to shame us all with the sheer amazingness of this piece that he's about to sing. Welcome, Lenny Hayden. <laughs> Thanks, Zelda. <laughs> the beautiful Andre. <laughs> um, I'll just give you, a, it's a little uh, sea shanty that I've recently written. I'll just give you a little quick quick uh, background or reason why, it, why I wrote it. Um, a good friend of mine, Morgan, uh, brought me to this uh, strange witchy, horcus kind of night in Vuterini's uh, art club, and um, I didn't know what the night was about, but he brought me there, and as I watched, I realized that it was a sort of a, an artistic pledge night, where the people met every six months, they would make an artistic pledge, they'd say, this is what I'm going to do, it would get written in a big leather-bound book, and in six months' time, you would have to uh, present that pledge, and if anyone didn't present the pledge, the book would have to be burned. And uh, the book has been in existence for nine years, so that's 18 batches of, of pledges that were in this book, so it really puts it under pressure. So when, when I was there and I was actually just figuring out what was going on, um, uh, I, I was always realizing that this is what it was. And I started thinking about my own creativity and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, thinking how I meander about. I'm an actor, as Zelda said, uh, but I used to paint and I used to write. And I used to write poetry and a yard song or whatever, but I hadn't done it in 30 years since I started acting. So at this point, when I realized that this was what was happening, I went, well, here's a good point, place where I can actually say, okay. So, but while I was thinking that, just a title came into my head. Um, it was the title. Sometimes a title comes first. And the title was, There's No One at the Wheel. 
And for me, at that point in time, it was like there's no one at the wheel of my creativity. I'm sort of floating, rudderless, going from one thing to another. And so that was the initial kind of idea for, for the title of the song. So I stepped up, like brave as brass and bold as brass, and went, I'm going to write a song, <laughs> and I'm going to paint a painting of the same title. Uh, there's no one at the wheel. So, um, and I had six months to do it. So, um, of course, with nine days left, <laughs> I sat down and wrote the song. <laughs> and painted the painting. And uh, so I didn't even know what song I was going to write. I hadn't written. Oh, and funnily enough, the, the, the first song, or the only other song I wrote was 30 years ago, when I was 21 years old. And it was actually out at sea. I was a fisherman on a trawler. And I, I wrote this a song. So there seems to be a maritime theme going through, uh, through some of the things that I'm doing. Um, but when I sat down to write this, I was going to write. But um, it, event, it just suddenly be turned into a sea shanty of, of 17th century style sea shanty, um, for some reason. Must have been in there somewhere. So, yeah. And, um, and I'd just like to say as well, funnily, Morgan, the friend that brought me there, you know, I ended up moving in with Morgan. And strangely enough, his house was called Sea View. So just, uh, it was just endless kind of, this the kind of story goes. But uh, so I really, uh, I, like, a lot of gratitude towards Morgan for bringing me there, but also introducing me to actually all the people that are there now, here tonight, to kind of watch this. They've all become very good friends, and I really, uh, really appreciate you, you, you coming here tonight. All right, so, anyway. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, there's a nice chorus to be, that you can sing along to, so don't be shy. Get in. It's a, it's a sea shanty. It's a bawdy sea shanty. And it's an easy one, because the, the chorus is basically, there's no one at the wheel. <laughs> so no, so um, there's no one at the wheel, right? <clears throat> Two score and ten years ago, I was this ship's youngest cargo. The hull it was leaky and the bosun was sneaky. There's no one at the wheel. The skipper, he's down below with a one-legged mandalay hoe. The cook, he's a bitchin' and my cock is itchin'. There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. I'm full of grog and I can't see for fog. There's no one at the wheel. The bosun, the, the, at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. I'm full of grog and I can't see for fog. There's no one at the wheel. The bosun, he had to go. Fucked him over two days ago. Now we're adrifting and the fog it ain't lifting. There's no one at the wheel. The crew's not turned to for days. And the sheets, they dance with the sails. The waves, they are rolling and my belly's growling. There's no one at the wheel. Come on! There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. 
I'm at a loose end, this ship's on its beam, and there's no one at the wheel. Everybody! There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. I'm at a loose end, this ship's on its beam, and there's no one at the wheel. Think it's time that I sling me old hook. Gonna make it be hook or be crook. I'll put out in a dory and bring home this story. There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. I've cut and run and I've took all the rum. There's no one at the wheel. Everybody! There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. I've cut and run and I've took all the rum. There's no one at the wheel. Now alone I whistle the wind and dream of a faraway land and all those beautiful girls with calico knickers and curls. There's no one at the wheel. Come on! There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. It's time to flee when tween devil and sea. There's no one at the wheel. All together! There's no one at the wheel. Come on! There's no one at the wheel. Go! It's time to flee when tween devil and sea. There's no one at the wheel. And again! There's no one at the wheel. There's no one at the wheel. It's time to flee when tween devil and sea. There's no one at the wheel. Woo! <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andre.